0: pray. It is no small thing, O Father, that the sun came up this morning in its glory, and we all felt its heat, its life giving light and heat. The sun this morning and the sky proclaim your glory, and if we have eyes to see it, O Lord, it will lead us to worship. Praise you for the song that we just sang. And we can trivialize such hymns that talk about the flowers and the trees, but your word doesn't trivialize them. They are all the work of your hand, and you have given them as a photograph or as a, as a painting for us. So that as we look at them, we think not only beauty but design, for you have created these things for your glory, they are for yourself, they are from you, they are for you, they are, f- they are to you, and by them, Lord, we ascribe glory to your name. And so thank you for another day, thank you for this Lord's Day, the day we perpetually, weekly, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the glory of which outshines the glory of the sun. And we praise you and give you thanks and ask you to send your Holy Spirit to speak to us, Lord, through your word. And teach us to see your glory in your world. And Lord, these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Psalm 19 this morning. Psalm 19. If you have your Bible, you can open it up to Psalm 19. I suspect if we were to have a conversation this morning or sometime this week or month with each of the congressional, senatorial, or even parliamentary heads of the Western world and ask them, do you believe in God? We would probably get a fairly unanimous uh, response. Yes, I believe there is a God. I think there would be a good bit of unanimity on that point. Whether they believe it or not, they might want to win points with evangelicals. But if you were to ask the corresponding question, does God speak, the atmosphere in the room may become a little uncomfortable. You see, it's one thing to say that you believe in God. It's quite another to affirm the notion that God speaks. It's safe to believe in a God who doesn't say anything. We are comfortable with the idea of a God who created the universe and wound it up like a top and now simply observes it from a distance. That kind of God doesn't poke around in anyone's life. That kind of God doesn't stick his nose in anyone's personal business. But if the God who exists actually has something to say, we can be sure that he will say some things that we don't want to hear. Better than simply to believe that there is a God who is all-powerful, but who reserves his right to remain silent. The problem, of course, is that the God who created the universe with a word and upholds everything by the word of his power has much to say to the people in this world. As Francis Schaeffer said, there is a God, and he is not silent. There is a God. And the word of God tells us all about this God who created everything. For our enjoyment, yes, but that even in that enjoyment, it would turn our eyes and our hearts toward him. Psalm 19 is about the communication of God to man or the revelation of God to man. There are other psalms that speak about God's word. Psalm 1, for example, talks about the man who is blessed and fruitful because his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he what? Meditates day and night. And of course, that Psalm 119 that Keith read from a little while ago, the longest chapter in the Bible. Isn't it interesting that the longest chapter in the Bible, hands down, not nothing's even close to the length of Psalm 119, and yet the entire psalm is about the written word of God. Psalm 19, then, is also about God speaking. It's about God speaking about himself and God speaking about us. In Psalm 19, We find God speaking about how He communicates, how He reveals Himself, how He leads us by His words. It is God telling us that He is not silent and why that is good for us. God has never been silent. From the very first day, well, not the first day of creation, but the first day of man's existence, we've talked about this before, man was created perfect, but He was incomplete. Man needed woman to be complete, but even they were incomplete in terms of knowledge. Though there was no sin, and though they surely were brilliant people, yet they needed God's word. They needed his counsel. They needed him to step into their world and say, listen, there's a danger in this garden that you don't know anything about. And I'm here to tell you, And so eat, feast on everything, every tree in the garden. Enjoy it to the fullest. But if you eat that one tree, you will surely die. God has always spoken. And his speech has created the world. And by his word, he has created his people. How does God speak? Well, the psalmist will say that there are two ways God speaks to man. First, through his created world. And second through his written word. Charles Spurgeon once said, God has written two books for us, the volume of the creation and the volume of the sacred scriptures, and these two are in complete harmony. He writes, happy are they who can read both of these books and see the same vein of teaching running through every page. God's written word and God's creation are perfectly No matter what scientists may say, they are in perfect sync. And So if you want to be truly educated in this world, if you want to be truly educated, master these two books. Master the scriptures and master the book of creation. Um, The psalmist is going to tell us about both this morning. And let's allow him to speak, shall we? Let's stand together. And read Psalm 19. <coughs> Psalm 19. Listen to the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a song of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the, su- the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he is set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs in its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And all the people said, "Amen." you can be seated. There's actually three natural divisions here, and if I really wanted to do this right, we would perhaps divide it into three different sermons, but... The danger of that is you lose continuity. And so let me do this in one message and then you can go back and study each of the three sections and make your own discoveries along the way. And there are many to make. I hope that you are discovering things in the word on your own and not merely requiring to be spoon-fed. Let's start with the first one. Uh, There are three categories or three veins of thought here. Number one, God's word in creation, verses one through six. Secondly, God's word in Scripture, verses 7 through 11. And then God's word in the worshiper, verses 12 through 14. Let's think about the first one, or what Spurgeon called the first book, the book of creation. The word, God's word in creation. In the first six verses, David tells us that God speaks through what he has made not in some kind of animistic way where material objects have some kind of, um, they're possessed of some spiritual personality. Um, remember when our kids were young and that Disney cartoon about um, Pocahontas came out. We wouldn't let it, let them watch it. As far as I know, they haven't watched it, right? <laughs> oh, they probably have. But do um, you remember... Uh, The trees would talk, and rocks, or I don't know, whatever the inanimate objects would speak. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, he's talking about the sense that creation offers irrefutable evidence that there is a God. If the creation says nothing more than that, it is said the main thing. The heavens, verse 1, refers to the sun, the moon, the stars. The sky above refers to the lower atmosphere, the clouds, the weather. Think thunder, lightning, rain, Texas hailstorms, tornadoes, and hurricanes. We get them all here. And through all of these features of God's creation, he speaks to mankind. And let there be no mistake, as horrific as, as Hurricane Harvey was, and Hurricane Maria after that, um, That was, in one sense, in a biblical sense, that was the voice of God. If nothing else, God was saying, do you see how weak you are? Do you see how powerful I am? Do you see how glorious I made the weather? I made the atmosphere. I control all. Turn to me. Turn to me. It's like when the uh, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, "Hey Jesus, when the tower in Siloam fell and those people were killed, I mean, why did they get that? Why were they killed? Were they worse than us? The implication?" And Jesus said, "No. Want to know the meaning of the tower? Here is what Jesus says: Unless you repent, you will also perish." every time there's a terrible hurricane or a tornado or a tsunami. We should hear that message. Unless you repent, you too will perish. And I think what Jesus is saying there is this. You're all gonna die. Everybody's gonna die. You're gonna die in different ways, but everybody dies. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of how and when. And the reality is one day, one day you will stand before God. You will die. You will leave this world and you will stand before God. And what will you say then? The heavens and the skies are declaring the glory of God. He reveals himself by the skillful, powerful, sometimes frightening, devastating work of his hands. In the creation, God is giving sworn testimony about the glory of himself. We might say that God's witness to himself has three characteristics from this passage. First of all, it's continuous. Notice verse 2, day after day, night after night, the testimony goes without intermission. It It just continues. If you look in in the sky during the day, you see things that proclaim his glory. But there are things that are in the sky that you can't see until nighttime. But when you look at the sky at night, you see things that proclaim his glory. Secondly, it is abundant. The verb in verse two is expressive. They, that is the heavens, pour forth speech. It's as if there is a flood of created things that that your eyes drink in when you open them and see his glory. It is continuous. And not only that, but it is, thirdly, it is universal. Although there are no words, verse 3, yet by sight rather than by sound, their message penetrates to the ends of the world, verse 4. It was evident in David's day, But even more so today, as John R. W. Stott Stott says, through the cosmology of modern astrophysics, the heavens, their vastness, their splendor, their order, their mystery, all of it reveals God's glory and greatness. Praise the Lord for the Hubble telescope. (laughs) In an effort to see things that are not there, they have revealed things that are. All of it created by a glorious and eternal God. Even though the creation does not speak with words, its message is heard all over the planet by all men. Steve Lawson says, no person anywhere on earth is without God's revelation through creation. Theologians refer to this as general revelation. General revelation. If if you're a, a... If you're theologically minded, when I said I was preaching on Psalm 19, you probably went, good, because the theology here is so rich. You have both general revelation and special revelation, which are the two kinds. And they're both in the same chapter, as we'll see. It was evident in David's day, and just as evident, and even more so in our day, that God's glory is on display in the sky and in the heavens. We call this general revelation because uh, it is general in the sense that all men can see it and all men have the responsibility, listen, all men can see it and all men have the responsibility to interpret it properly. You say, well, not all men go to seminary. No one needs to go to seminary to interpret creation properly. What is the proper interpretation of creation? Well, simply stated, There is a God, and you are accountable to him. There is a God, and you are accountable to him. Or you could say it this way. There is a God, and if that proposition is true, you surely will be held accountable by him. Of course, you're aware of the fact that Paul made this very argument in his letter to the Romans. And could we turn there just briefly? Uh, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, and I know for many of you this is, this is theology, that you could probably stand up here and do a better job with, with the text than I can, but it's important that we look at this, Romans 1, 18 through 21. Watch this. I want you to see the connection between the creation and man's condition as we are today, as the world is today. Romans 1, 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The question is, what is that truth? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now where is And how has God shown it to them? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made or in the things that were created. So, and here is the conclusion, or therefore, the NAS says, I think more directly, Therefore, in conclusion, they are without what? Excuse. For, although they knew God, the presumption of God about man is when you are born, as soon as you become aware of the world around you, you know. You know. For although they knew God, they did not honor him, as God, or give thanks to him. That last phrase always strikes me. Because one of the marks of an unbeliever is that they're thankless to God. They, are not, they may be thankful for gifts from other people, but not thankful to God. Sometimes people ask me why I respond so strongly when Christians reveal their skepticism about the creation account in the book of Genesis. And I do have strong responses to that. And one of the reasons is found right here in Romans 1. You see, once man suppresses the truth that all creation is the handiwork of God, designed to reveal his glory, he casts aside God's precepts about moral realities and he begins living according to his appetites rather than according to God's truth his revelation, which he has suppressed. The condition of our society today and its belief about creation are not working on separate planes. They're not separate realities. They are one. One comes from the other. I would submit to you that this is why our world is in such chaos today. Having rejected God as creator, we have bought the lie that it's better to be guided by our appetites and urges rather than by God. And so how how do we establish the fact that it's right to be governed by my urges? Answer, get rid of God. Say that the world and everything in it was, was not created. Suppress that truth, which all men know. And declare that there, there is no standards, there are no absolutes, except that one, that there are none. And so you see, the voice of creation speaks against such thinking And listen to this. Don't misunderstand. When we talk about general revelation, we don't say it's general in the sense that it's not authoritative. It is authoritative. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter one. They are without excuse. Why? Because they're not interpreting the world properly. And God has given them the capacity to interpret it properly. You go out here, we have the most magnificent row of trees out here. And I would, I would encourage you. and I, I then we're going to see a whole crowd of people standing out there looking up. But go to the last one and look back at, at the row of them, but especially that first one. Sometimes I leave my office and I, I walk just to help wake me up so I can study and think. And sometimes I go out and I look at that tree and I think that's the most gorgeous, complex I've never seen a tree who, whose boughs are so intertwined. There's, there's one place where they've all kind of merged together, and there's a hole in the middle, and it's just beautiful. It's beautiful. They were little bitty things. That flagpole out there, that flag used to fly freely when I came here. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> The voice of creation speaks clearly. And if you are human, you already have eyes to see it. And if you are a believer, you dare never miss it. Not because there'll be judgment. No, you're you're already forgiven. but Because you miss the glory. You miss the glory of God. And that's why we're here. Not only to see it and savor it, But to proclaim it. Because it has no voice, and yet its voice is heard. Its words, it has no words. Interesting the way this text is written. It has no words, and yet there are words. It has no sound, and yet it speaks. And what does it say? There is a God, and you are accountable to him. This message alone is not enough to reconcile sinners to God, but it does prompt us to ask the right question, namely, since it's obvious there is a God, how can sinful men be made right with him? How can sinners be reconciled to their creator? That's what general revelation begs us to ask. And so creation speaks Though it is silent, it speaks boldly. It speaks authoritatively. In the morning, the sun comes into the sky, verse 5, like a bride, bridegroom beaming with delight as he bursts out of his pavilion onto the path that leads to where he will take and marry his bride. You, you just you get this image of, and it's repeated in the text, this joy it's not just the sun coming, and what does the sun do? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's a ball of energy, it gives light. And the psalmist, writing this as a song, says, Yes, it is that. But think of it like this it's like in the morning, it's like the bridegroom who just can't wait to get to his bride comes bursting out of his chamber, and he starts over there, and he runs as fast as he can to the other side to where his bride is waiting, and then it gets dark again, and he can't wait. And the whole world rejoices at the sight of his face, Spurgeon says. And he is like it, that is, the sun is like an Olympic athlete, verse 6, tirelessly running his course with strength, always moving forward, always pressing toward the finish line. Its heat touches everything in its path, and nothing is hidden from it. It's his general revelation. Everyone, everyone experiences it. Again, this speaks of the universality of the knowledge of God. Don't let the so-called atheists fool you. Everyone everyone sees the evidence. Everyone has eternity written in their hearts. Everyone has sufficient evidence to conclude that there is a God, and he is the source of life and breath and all things. And, And if you didn't know this, then be taught this morning that the atheist chooses not to believe God, not because of the evidence, but because of the moral implications of where that evidence will lead if he cracks open the door to believing it was all created by God. Why? Because creation says there is a God and you are accountable to him. And so an atheist will say, I don't believe in God, and God says in Romans 1, I don't believe in atheists. <laughs> it's not that they don't believe, it's that they hate what is true. This is the word of God in creation, and then secondly, the word of God in Scripture. Uh, this is you know, this is my favorite part of the psalm, it's certainly the most influential on this church, And in one sense, it is the most significant. Because while we can conclude in the heaven by looking at the heavens that there is a God and we're accountable to him, we don't fully understand what that means without the second book. The second book explains the first and every implication of the first that we need to know. It is God's word in scripture, verses 7 through 11. This passage is all about the sufficiency of scripture. When you say, when we say the scriptures are sufficient, we mean that God's word provides all necessary truth to teach people everything they need to know to please the Lord in every circumstance. It doesn't mean that it gives you all truth for everything. It's not going to teach you how to build a house. It's it's not going to teach you how to run plumbing in that house. It's not going to teach you how to build a rocket ship or you know, fix your toilet or anything like that. It's going to give you all truth that you need so that you can be pleasing to God, whether you're building a house or fixing your toilet or building a rocket or an airplane or whatever it is. You can be pleasing to the Lord in every circumstance because of what God has revealed through his word. Verses seven through nine It's interesting, It's like so many psalms, uh, all of the psalms in in one sense, but some of them stand out in this vein more than others. They are so carefully constructed by the author. And I wish we had time to talk about parallelisms and and fun things like that. Um, But you can read about that on your own. But you'll get a flavor of it here. Listen to this. In verses 7 through 9, there are six, mark that number, very specific statements. There are then six titles for the Scriptures law, testimony, precepts, command, fear, isn't that an interesting one, and judgments. And then there are six characteristics of the Scriptures it is perfect, sure, right, pure, and clean. And then notice how many times the phrase of the Lord. Okay, so he's speaking of scripture. So all of it is of the Lord. How many times does he say that? Six. (laughs) Six times of the Lord. Six times we're reminded that this book is not a human book. It is from the Lord. It is God's own revelation about his own word. But what I want us to focus on primarily as we go through these next several verses, is the implications of these. And it's all in the text. Let's look at it briefly. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The word for perfect here means complete. It is perfect in the sense uh, that it is not in any way, incomplete. In fact, the scriptures repeatedly say, no one should dare add anything or take anything away from this book. It is complete. It is complete. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. That answers the question, what does this perfect, complete word do? for us. An answer it restores the soul. The word soul here is nefesh in the Hebrew. It means the inner person. It means the real you, the heart. It is the spiritual you. And what he's saying here is that by the power of the word of God our souls are transformed. Our souls are regenerated. We're, we already observed that the word of God through creation is not enough to save anyone from God's judgment, but the word of God in Scripture is sufficient to save from judgment. It is sufficient to bring someone to reconciliation with God. It restores the soul. It revives the soul. It gives life to the soul. By the truth of Scripture alone, the inner person is transformed. Faith comes by what, class? Hearing. By hearing and hearing through the word of God. the Word of Christ, or the Word of God. That's right. Romans 10:17. "No sinner can be reconciled to God on their own. You can't come to God alone. You're not going to look up in, into the sky and see the sun for the first time and say, oh, "God sent his Son." to live 30 years, to fulfill all righteousness, to die on the cross on my behalf and rose again from the dead. You're not going to know any of that unless you go to the second book, which is the primary book, the book of Scripture. And so the word of the Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. By the way, the law here is not just referring to the Ten Commandments. It is the word Torah, which just means the teaching. It's a general term. It means all of Scripture. All of Scripture is perfect, reviving the soul. And then watch next. Verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Uh, Sure means firm. It means reliable. It makes the simple wise. And, and this is my personal favorite of the whole list. They're, they're all great, and they're all necessary. But I love this one, because I remember who I was. And you know what? I'm, I'm not the bastion of all wisdom, and there are other people that you could probably receive better counsel from than me. But I know what a simpleton I was before I came to know Christ. I've told you this before. And and, and the, the definition here is... is was perfect for me back then. The word simple means an open door. It means you lack discernment. You never know when to close the door. The door is always open. Your, your head is always open. Your, your will is always open. I used to say, look, I'll try anything once. That's stupid. <laughs> That's just dumb. That's simple. That's simple-minded. It, it, there was like some virtue in having your, your head open all the time. Uh, One author said, uh, the danger of having a perpetually open mind is that your brain may fall out. (laughs) It can lead you into all kinds of trouble. And what, what the scripture does is it teaches you when it's necessary to shut the door. Or more importantly, when it's appropriate to open it. When you have the word of God in your heart, shut that door. Shut it be careful. It makes the simple person wise. People naturally have minds like a door. They don't know when it should be open. They don't know when it should be closed. This is about discernment. The Word of God teaches us discernment. We know what is true. We know what is in error because we know the Word of God. Or if you know the Word of God, then you can bring to yourself and to others the wisdom of God. It's not wise to always be open-minded. We need to know what is good. We need to know what is bad. We need to know what is evil, what is helpful, what is dangerous, what's right, and what is wrong. And without the scriptures, listen, it's always changing. The world's view on morality and ethics is always changing. It's always changing. But the word of God never changes, and we'll get to that in a minute. Look at verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The word right here means they set a right path. Very similar to what we find in, in Psalm 23. The paths of righteousness, right? And we've talked about that before. Paths of, what is paths of righteousness? If you're following the good shepherd, you're on the right path. And how do you follow the shepherd? David is saying here, you follow the shepherd by obeying God's word because the word of God is always right. The precepts of the Lord are right. Not only are they right, but they rejoice the heart. You're struggling with some, some days of being blue, of days of being depressed. Maybe your sickness or maybe your circumstances have just got you down. And, and where do you turn? Don't turn to Prozac first. Or to chocolate. <laughs> turn rather to the word of the Lord. And I'm serious about that. You know, really, don't grab the phone first and call your girlfriend or call your, your best buddy or, you know, your friend across the country. Don't do that. Grab the word of God And if you can't find in the word of God what you need, then get the phone and say to someone, listen, I need counsel. Don't give me your opinion. Can you point me to scriptures? Because it's the word of the Lord. It's the testimony of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord and the precepts of the Lord that rejoice the heart. And so the testimonies of the Lord are right. They will always lead you in the paths of righteousness. (laughs) How do you navigate through life? How do you navigate through marriage? How do you navigate with your employer when he's being um, difficult? Your neighbors, your children, your boss, your government? How do you navigate through those areas of practical living? The answer is, the precepts of the Lord lay out a clear path. The question is not, Are the scriptures reliable? The question is, are you reading and trusting and obeying them? Because they are reliable. And because of that, because they are reliable, this brings rejoicing to the heart. Obedience is always, obedience to scriptures is always the spring of joy. It's always the spring of joy. You can go to the Word of God. I had to do this this week. I was down about something, and for a little while there, I wasn't even sure what it was. And a scripture came to my mind. And it it, it comes to my mind because I tell other people to do this. Think about what is true. What is true? What is true right now? This is what God requires of me. What is true right now? And I started rehearsing what I know from the Word of God. God is sovereign whatever I'm experiencing right now was carefully measured for me. He loves me. He's forgiving me. This is not not punishment. This is not judgment in my life. I don't have an explanation of why it's happening or why I feel this way, but I know these things and 10,000 others. And as soon as I get bringing them to bear on my own soul, reminding myself of what's true, man, it was like the cloud just lifted. It's a rock under your feet. That's why it produces joy. True joy comes from following God's word. Jesus said, John fifteen eleven. these things I have spoken to you, think word of God. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be what? Full. Full. This should be so precious to us. You can maintain joy and lead others into joy by learning to obey the word of God because scripture is God's fountain of joy. And then verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Pure means clear. Um, You could say God's word gives clarity it enlightens your eyes, it enlightens your heart, your mind. It enables us to see and evaluate clearly. When we face difficult trials in life, we need clarity. When false teaching comes knocking at your door, sometimes literally, you need clarity. When your emotions go out of control and it's hard to think right, you need clarity. When God gives it Uh, God gives us clarity, and he does it very specifically through his word. Listen, here's what we tend to do. God, give me clarity, give me clarity. I, I don't have it yet. God, give it to me. Give me clarity, give me clarity. Lord, I can't see things. My emotions are out of control or my circumstance. I don't know how to respond. Lord, help me, help me, help me. And he's saying, I'm speaking. It's all right here. The Word of God is always speaking. The Spirit of the Lord is always speaking. If you have ears to hear, but apart from the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit does not speak. He speaks through His Word. You don't have to be looking at the pages, you can have it hidden in your heart. But the only reliable source of truth from God is His written Word, it gives clarity. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And so God gives us clarity by his word. By scripture, we learn that even death cannot kill us. We know that God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. I was praying that with a family member yesterday. Don't ever allow that scripture to become cliche or trite. This is precious. Paul was writing to people who were being killed. For your sakes, we are being put to death all day long. Same context, same chapter. This was the persecuted church, and yet he was saying God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Unbelievers don't know that. They don't have that kind of clarity. They don't know how to look at their world and interpret it properly. But we can. We can. And then verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. Isn't it interesting? All of, these, all of these key words here refer to Scripture, and in this case, he chooses fear. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It's noteworthy here to observe that the author now speaks of Scripture in this way, and we don't find that explicitly, I think, anywhere else in Scripture, at least no place that I could find We know from Proverbs that the fear of the Lord or deep reverence and respect for God is the beginning of wisdom. The scriptures teach us that that this is wholesome, uh, winsome, imparting of fear comes from the word of God. It is not a fear that causes you to think that judgment is about to fall on you, but a reverence that causes you to respect God and say to him, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Whatever you require, I will do. Yes, sir. Usually when the Old Testament speaks about fearing God, it's a reference to worship. You come to worship in the fear of the Lord. In the fear of the Lord. So in in one sense, the Word of God is our worship manual. We know how to worship God from the heart. The expressions may be different, but from the heart, what it means, what kind of worship does God receive? He doesn't receive every kind of worship. But the fear of the Lord is clean, and it endures forever. Clean means without corruption or error or evil. Every word of God is pure. It is without deficiency, without error or fault or inadequacy. It, along with the God who spoke it, is the most clean and pure thing in the universe. The most enduring thing in the universe. And it endures forever. That is, it is timeless. The Word of God is timeless. The Psalms were written thousands of years ago, and yet here we are. Here we are talking about the Psalms. And I hear your responses, that that groan of meditation, mmm, mm, like you're eating, you know, a good lunch. Mmm, this is good. And and yet, these psalms are thousands of years old. And yet they still speak. They endure forever. Jesus said, "Until heaven and earth pass away, before until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the smallest stroke of the pen." will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, Matthew 5.18. And later he declared, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Matthew 24.35. In other words, Jesus is saying, God's word, my word, it never changes, it endures forever. Which means... You have something that you can trust forever. And then finally, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Judgments are divine verdicts. By the God who is the judge of all men, God renders the final verdict on every man and every nation. His judgments are true. He never misses it. His verdict is always perfect, always complete, always righteous altogether. And he has a verdict. And it is a righteous and holy verdict. He will judge in the end. And that too never changes. You remember that old t-shirt a few years back that said, um, I was talking to Jason, he reminded me of this earlier today. It says, um, when I was a kid, Pluto was a planet. (laughs) I read an article by Russell Baker, The other day, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek critique of the culture's ever-changing declaration about what is true and what is no longer true. At the end of his piece, he writes this. Many people become as irked as I do about the incessant need to keep up with today's wisdom by abandoning or revising yesterday's wisdom and, of course, today's wisdom will just as inevitably have to be abandoned or revised as the future bears upon us. You can bet the world has not faced the last revision of knowledge about Pluto or about who, what constitutes a good breakfast. The revision of what we think of as knowledge goes on forever and ever, as it always has. The truth about knowledge seems to be that its truth Its truth is only a sometimes thing, that what we accept as true this year will have to be abandoned as the world turns. This endless abandonment and revision is usually said to result from progress. But suppose progress is also an idea doomed to be abandoned. What if there is no such thing as progress, but only change? Of course, Baker is right the wisdom of the world and what it calls truth is always changing. And that's because it's always failing. That's why it needs to be changed. The word of God, however, is permanent. It's fixed. It's perfect. It's enduring. As Isaiah said, Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You wonder why we call ourselves a Bible church? You wonder why we preach the Bible, counsel the Bible, pray the Bible? It's because God has taught us that the Word of God is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient to teach us everything we need to know and believe and do in order to please the Lord in every circumstance. And not only that, but as we conform to that, and as we actually begin living in obedience to his word, his timeless, unchanging word, we discover more joy than we had ever known otherwise. And that brings us to the final theme of this passage. We've seen God's word in creation, God's word in scripture, and finally, and I don't have time to look at this whole thing, but this is kind of the response, beginning with, Verse 10, you could say, no wonder it is, verse 10, more to be desired than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. He's saying it's better than honey and money. <laughs> the word of God is, is ironic. I uh, went to Costco yesterday And they're always handing out these exotic treats. And I'd already, you know, I'd long since finished this message and studied this passage. And I was walking through, and of course, I'm grabbing up all the snacks I can get, the free samples. And there was a long line at one, and I thought, this must be good. (laughs) And I got in line, and when I got to the end of the line, the lady was there, and she had this, this fresh flatbread. It was cut in little triangles, and all she did was pour honey over it. And people were standing in line. Apparently, they did in David's day too. <laughs> honey. David is saying the word of God is more precious than money, and it is more sweet than honey, it is more desirable than honey. Moreover, by them your servant is warned and so there's the sweetness and the wonder and now the warning the word of god gives us two things promises and warnings promises and warnings it gives us more than that it gives us lots of instruction but along in that instruction promises and warning promises and warning and the word of god gives us to us Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And watch this. Here's the promise part. In keeping them, there is great reward. There's joy. There's reward. You know, if if you married in the Lord, and both you and your spouse are living in obedience to God's word, you're probably going to have a great marriage. It's probably going to be great. Not perfect, but really good. Who can discern his errors? This is, this is an admission. Lord, I need discernment. I need your discernment. I have such little discernment on my own. I can't even tell the condition of my own heart. Who can discern his er- errors? Answer, apart from the word of God, no one. No one really understands how far off track they've gone or in what categories or in specifics. Who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults. You know what that is? That's justification. Justification. This is God declaring us righteous on the basis of another. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And Romans 6 will come along and says, sin has no dominion over you. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And Then how should you respond to this? Um, last verse. Oh, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, you've just told me how. You've just shown me in your word that it can accomplish all of this. It gives me the promises I need. It gives me the warnings I need. It reveals things in my heart that I didn't even know were there that are causing problems in my life and dishonoring you. Oh, Lord, don't let them rule over me. Remind me that you're sovereign and not sin. God, let the meditations, even the imaginations of my heart be acceptable to you. And beloved, one of the most wonderful things in the world, as you minister to other people, you minister to yourself and to those closest to you, is to be able to tell people, listen, there's an answer to what you're now experiencing. There is an explanation. There is a resolution because you have God's word. It is sufficient and it never changes and it is in your hand. This is such a wonderful passage of Scripture, and there's so much more that can be said. I would just ask. Paul said in Colossians, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Are you rich in the word of God? Do you cherish and delight in its warnings and promises? Do you devour it like honey or whatever your favorite dessert is? Do you ask God to use it like a spiritual x-ray machine to identify anything hidden in your heart that may be toxic and harmful to your soul? The Word of God has the power to do all of that and more. To those who love God, it is both wisdom and delight. The Word of God is both your wisdom and your delight. And so we may, may we be able to say with David, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth about the truth. Thank you that you tell us what we already know but need to be constantly reminded that everything we need for life and godliness is bound up in a single book, in the word of God, help us to be men and women of the book. Help us to be young people of the book, children of the book. Martin Luther said, my conscience is captive by the word of God. May our hearts be captive by the word of God. And may we know the joy of living it for your glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name, Amen.